Good evening and welcome back to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you tonight as we continue our series looking at wisdom from Agar in Proverbs 30. We're thinking about all kinds of different examples of wisdom and lack thereof, and tonight we turn to a picture of a series of what we could call reversals, something that we, we often really enjoy hearing about, the story of someone who goes from a bad situation to a good one, someone who goes from rags to riches. And yet in these reversals, we're going to be told that they aren't actually a good thing. We need to be discerning even as we approach what seems like progress. So let's come before our God and ask for his wisdom, his discernment, so that we see that not only in these particular stories, but we can sense God's calling to us that we'd act wisely in our own lives and in helping those around us as well. Let's pray. Father, Sometimes we struggle to understand what achieving success looks like. We value too often the wrong things. We, we look at something and it seems good, and yet it's actually leading us away from you. It's leading to dire consequences. And, and Lord, would you help us as we go through these next few verses of Proverbs 30 to understand better your heart, and through that be enabled to seek after you, and to have your wisdom thrive in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we, we love the story of a good reversal. If you think about it, if you go to the Muni this summer, I would imagine more likely than not, you will see a story of a reversal of, of someone going from a bad situation to a good situation. Most, most musicals are that way. They're meant to make us feel joyful, and, and it builds and it builds throughout the story until that rising crescendo of the grand overture at the end where everything has come together. I love that story most of the Music Man, of, of the different musicals out there. I love the Music Man, and it's basically that story if you think about it. You start out with, with Harold Hill, a, a, a washed-up con man who goes from town to town and then is chased out, is known around the country for his con job and doesn't really have a friend in the world. He, he's not someone who people want to be around. And he comes into this town ready to do his normal job of conning the people. He says he's going to form a band to keep the boys away from the sin that will come as they play at the pool hall. And, and so he's going to form a band. He doesn't actually have any musical training, but he claims to. And he starts talking about this think system where if people just think the music, they'll be able to play it. And and of course, we know what he's really trying to do is, is take as much money from the town as possible and then leave. Even as he, he goes and courts Marion, the librarian, he's doing it because he knows that, that she is cynical of him and he's trying to persuade her to not look into his situation and, and discover him. Well, as the story progresses, we know that Marion actually does look into his story and she finds out that he's a con. She discovers that while he claims to be a graduate from Gary, Indiana's musical conservatory, the class of 05, that Gary, Indiana wasn't established until the next year. So there wasn't a conservatory. She knows that he's a scammer. Her instincts were right. 
but she decides to, to cover it up because she's fallen in love with Harold and, and she wants him to be okay. In fact, as the crowds start to learn who he is and that he's really a scammer and they're ready to tar and feather him, what does she do? She wants him to run so that he can escape punishment. But something happens with Harold. He, he's come to, to care about the people of the town. He's come to actually genuinely love Marion and he chooses to stay and face the potential wrath of the crowd because he's actually changed over the course of this. He came to con the town, but the town is now his hometown. And he came to con Marion, but now he loves Marion. And what happens? As that grand overture arrives for the music man, somehow, miraculously, the, the children of the town actually do know how to play the instruments. And, and the con that shouldn't ever work somehow does, and everything ends up happy. He now has his hometown. He now has his beloved Marion. Everything is good. And we walk away joyful as everyone's singing and celebrating. That's how we often think about reversals. And as we read these reversals in Psalm thir- or rather Proverbs 30, we can at points think, well, these sound like the makings of a musical. These are joyful things. Why does God say that they're unsettling? Why are they bad? Let's go ahead and dig in and learn about these reversals because it'll help us to take God's wisdom and apply it to the things that we see changing in our own lives so that we have discernment over what's genuinely good. Let's go ahead and turn to Proverbs 30. Verse 21, if you want to turn there with me in your Bible. Agar continues his dialogue on wisdom by saying, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes a king. And a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Now, as I said, these seem like the things of a musical. A slave, someone who has the lowest of low social status in a society, becomes a ruler. That sounds like a great story. Why are these bad things? Someone who's starving, we're told, a fool gets food. Don't we want the hungry to have food? Doesn't God even worry about that? We've talked about that in past weeks. God provides for the needy. Why is it bad that the fool is filled with food? Gets even perhaps more ununderstandable when we get to the third one. An unloved woman finds a husband. Isn't that something that we should be celebrating? This is wonderful. It worked out for her. Isn't this great? And yet we're told this is unsettling, that it causes the earth to tremor. Maybe the only one that we can kind of look at and, and, and think about and say, well, this does sound bad, is the maidservant who replaces her mistress. And, and it it's, feels very distant because it's describing a form of polygamy that obviously doesn't happen in most of our cultures today. And in any case, it sounds bad. Someone displacing another woman as someone's beloved wife, that's not a good thing. And so we get that one, at least to an extent. But but how do these others fit in? Does God just not want people to move from a bad state to a good state? Does he want the people who are enslaved to stay enslaved? Does he want the fool to starve to death? Does he want someone who's feeling unloved not to find a spouse? Is that what God wants? Does God not like reversals? Well, from the rest of scripture, we know that's not true. For example, if we just go back a few chapters to Proverbs chapter 17, We read, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Clearly a very different picture from what we've just read. 
Or take a look here at Mary's Magnificat, her song as she celebrates that she's been told she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. She says, He that is the Lord has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. These don't sound like God-opposing reversals. They sound sort of like they echo what we've just read about, these, these four things that Agar says are actually bad. So what's wrong with them here? Well, Agar isn't saying it's always bad to go from, from a, a horrible situation, an oppressed situation, to a better situation. What he's saying is we need to examine how it happens. He's encouraging us to examine the heart of the matter. And let's start and go through these because in each one we see a, an example of where we can approach it with the wrong heart and bad things happen. For example, with the servant or the slave, shouldn't we be excited that the servant becomes the ruler? Well, I think if we look in our own hearts and our own experience, we know that it's more complicated than that. Because so often when we find ourselves in a position lacking power and we move to a position of power, what do we do? We do the very things that we disliked in the person who previously had power. And certainly through the history of the world, there are plenty of examples of, of a servant who manages to rise up and take power, maybe even become king. When it happens, oftentimes they don't do better than the one who previously oppressed them. What do they do? They oppress others. They want to get back. They want others to feel what they went through. And so they seek to just extend the pattern of sin. I think that's what Agar has in mind here. We can turn to scripture and find examples. For example, Jeroboam, who serves Solomon, what does he do? He, he learns that he has the opportunity to become king because Solomon has started to chase after other gods. And God says, you can become king over the 10 northern tribes of Israel. I'm going to leave a remnant for the line of David, but they're going to receive judgment for not being faithful to me. And you can become a faithful king who will have many descendants who will reign on the throne of Israel before me. And it would seem at first Jer Jeroboam should be saying, wow, this is great. I'm going to do better than Solomon. I bet that's what he's thinking in his head. But what happens when it actually comes to fruition a few years later, when, when Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king in Solomon's stead. He's the son of Solomon. And 10 of the tribes are ripped away and put under the control of Jeroboam. What happens there? Jeroboam becomes even worse. He worships more false gods. He builds false places of worship to replace the temple where the true God is meant to be worshipped. He's raised up. He has the opportunity, but then he goes and does even worse than the one he's replacing. And that's what we see so often in our own lives. It's a challenge to not just immediately say, oh, if someone went from a, a bad situation, an oppressed situation, to a position of power, we, we should celebrate that. It's, it's very much in our culture that we celebrate people that go from rags to riches, and we just want to, to jump on that and, and be so excited. What Agar is encouraging us to do is ask, should the person actually be there? Is that person actually doing good and where they're being taken to? Because sometimes, sometimes God allows people to be raised up like that as a form of judgment because they're not actually qualified to be in the position. They don't actually have the heart and the wisdom to be in the position. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 5. The prophet says, And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. What do we see there? Isaiah is predicting the coming judgment of the people, and he says part of the way that's going to happen is that the honorable are going to be replaced with the dishonorable. Those who have 
have earned by their age a position of power will be replaced by those who have not yet. In other words, you're going to see what happens oftentimes in failed states after a war. We've seen this in the history of the world over and over again. You'll have warlords rise up. Many times they're, they're people who, who were in very impoverished, powerless situations who, who managed to collect enough weapons, managed to collect enough friends, and they take over, and they're twice as bad as the people they were going to replace. You see that sort of thing over and over again. One commentator looked at this and said, doesn't it feel like a description of Adolf Hitler? Someone who, who is relatively of meager status and manages to rise up to a very, very powerful and yet very wicked leader. He rises up, he's a servant, so to speak. And yet as he rises up, what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, now I have this blessing, I've, I've achieved success, I'm going to help other people have success. What does he do? He takes the axe to grind that he's formed over the years in which he wasn't powerful. And he applies it to other people. And that, I believe, is what Agar has in mind here as he describes the slave going to the ruler. Someone who, who isn't what's being described in Proverbs 17 where the servant is now treated as a son because that servant is wise and seeks after the heart of God and now he's going to receive the blessings of a son. But rather someone who's just angry. It's going to take that anger. And so we need to ask, what, what is the heart of the matter? What's the heart of the person being elevated? Sometimes in our own political system, we fall into a terrible trap with this. We see someone who, whom we kind of identify with. Maybe they've gone through some of the things we have, and they're, they're rising up to a powerful political position. They're running for a high political office, and, and we get all excited, and we want to support them and cheer them on, and we don't ask, what's their heart? Are they actually seeking after God? Are they actually acting in a way that God says is pleasing to him? Or are they merely taking the anger that I fear, or rather feel, and amplifying it out? Are they merely rising up to replace someone I dislike? So often our human hearts only are chasing after that particular apparent success of, of, of having a loftier position rather than the true success of doing what's pleasing to God. We see that over and over again in these examples. We think about the fool that's now filled with food. That one, there's a head scratcher. It, isn't it good that this person isn't starving? And yet, and yet we're told it's not. Now, how does that work? How does that make any sense at all? Especially when we know that God worries about people being hungry. Well, we see with this fool, he's not only going from being hungry to being filled, but he's actually being, let's think about that, he's being filled. He's, in other words, he has enough. He isn't just going to survive. Now he has the luxury of enough food to be stuffed, which in a culture that's often subsistence uh, isn't normal. Today we can stuff our faces. Most of us can be full every day if we want to. But in that culture, that wasn't necessarily true. So now we have someone who essentially has, has made it. He's, he's had success. And as he has that success, he, he isn't going because he's a fool. He's not going to use it wisely. He's not going to help other people. He's going to just bathe in luxury. Now you might say, Tim, but isn't that a little harsh? Okay, he's not the smartest person. He's a little foolish. How do you know that he's going to do that? Well, we need to keep in mind what the Bible uses the word fool to indicate. And first and foremost, it's what we see repeatedly in the Psalms, which is the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. He doesn't want to seek after God. He doesn't want to seek after God's wisdom. His God is himself and making himself happy. And in this case, making his stomach happy. And so it doesn't matter if other people are suffering. It doesn't matter if everything he's doing is simply basking in luxury himself. As long as he's happy, he's okay. 
What we see is not someone moving from a foolish state to a non-foolish state and having food. We see someone who has somehow encountered success and now going to use it as foolishly as he used his lack of success. And that's why the earth trembles, because in some sense we might say the wrong person has the food. Take a look earlier in Proverbs at Proverbs chapter 28. It says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Isn't that interesting? Now, like so many of the Proverbs, the Proverbs are, as we say, proverbially true. In other words, they speak to how things should go in life and how they frequently go in life. They don't always go that way. We can all point to the example of someone who works desperately hard and ends up in poverty. Or someone who's completely lazy and has success. But the point is, that's not how it should be, and it's not what we should seek to do. And yet, with this fool who's elevated, we know that's exactly what he's going to do. And so the person who's working hard is maybe experiencing famine, while this fool has more than enough to eat and doesn't care about the person who worked hard and, and acted wisely. And it's greatly disturbing. It's a reversal, yes, but it's a bad reversal. Now, okay, we can kind of understand those two. It makes some sense with someone who shouldn't be a ruler who becomes ruler. It makes sense with someone who's foolish and is going to misuse his success. But what about the third one? Why would it be bad if someone who's unloved finds a spouse? What could be bad about that? Commentators wrestle with this one more because it's a little unclear in its wording. And I think the best explanation is what one commentator settled on and a number of others have adopted now, which is that the the, the point isn't someone who is unloved and then finds a husband, and, and so she has the success of being loved, but rather someone who found a husband and isn't loved by the husband. And so, yes, she's married now, and so it seemed like it was a progression from lack of success to success, and yet it's actually quite the opposite. We have this example in Scripture. We can think back to Genesis and, and the story of, of Leah, who Jacob is tricked into marrying. And her father could look at it, and he seems to in some sense. Laban, he looks at it and says, ah, I, I've brought success for Leah. I've gotten her to have a husband. But we know it's a horrible situation. It causes all kinds of family strife, and it certainly brings strife to Leah. Because while she has success, she isn't loved. It's a horrible situation. We see in Deuteronomy actual protections for, for women whom their husbands would decide the husband decided he didn't love the wife anymore and, and trying to guard them because of the, the horror of that situation, the tragedy of that situation. And so what we see here is while it appears that there's a, a superficial sense of success, we know it doesn't always mean actual success. And that kind of leads into the fourth picture here, the one that's a little harder to identify with, but also speaks of a lack of success. And the picture here is really uh, seems to be analogous to what we see also in Genesis, if we go back to the story of, of Abraham and Sarah, and their inability to have a child, even though God has promised that their child will become a great nation and ultimately becomes the nation of Israel. It seems like God isn't coming through on his promises, and so they take it into their own hands, and Abraham takes a second wife, which is Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and, and they have a child, Ishmael, and it seems like, oh, now we have success, we have an heir. And yet it actually causes strife. For one, they've tried to solve things their own way, and it's not what God intends. But the other thing is there's all kinds of jealousy that comes into play here. 
And so it, part of the reason God didn't intend it is it just messes up the family dynamic in all sorts of horrible ways. And so while there's the, the marker of success, now there's an error, it distracts from the true heir, Isaac, who God intended to actually give to Abraham and Sarah and ultimately does. And so you have all kinds of horrible things. In Genesis 21, Sarah actually kicks Ishmael and Hagar out of the household because she's afraid. She looks at them and says, these leeches, they're going to take away the inheritance that belongs to my son Isaac. And, and this is the description of the tragedy that happens in these situations where, where, again, it's an alien situation for us today, but you have the maidservant who replaces the wife. And it messes everything up, even though what it seems like they're doing is they're seeking after the success of an heir for the inheritance. Now, that one may be foreign. The others may be a little less so. But in all of them, what we see is something that is very, very familiar to us if we really examine our hearts, which is that we often measure our success by achieving markers of success rather than what God says is genuine success. In a sense, it reminds me of my fuel gauge. I've been reminded about this every time I drive around in recent eh, year and a half or so now. Uh, my fuel gauge on my car doesn't work properly. And so for the first quarter tank or so, it's accurate. But after that, it starts going down much more slowly than the actual tank does. And so if I were to look at my tank and I see it's half full, I could look at it and say, okay, I, I know that on a half a tank of gas, I should be able to go a couple hundred miles. No problem. I'm, I'm good. And I could measure my ability to have a successful trip based on that marker. I have a half tank of gas. Now, if I do that, I'm not going to have success. I'm going to be on the side of the road waiting for someone to bring me gas because the tank is going to be empty and it's still going to be saying that I have half a tank. I can complain to that fuel gauge as much as I want. I can complain to the dispatcher that I call up for roadside assistance as much as I want. And my gas gauge says I have a half a tank. It doesn't change the reality that my tank is now empty. So often we look at a success gauge and it's a worldly success gauge and it appears that we're moving the needle in the right direction. It looks like we're moving towards success, but, but in the sense of genuine success, lasting success, the success that comes from being spiritually reborn and, and living in God's fellowship, our tank is actually getting emptier and emptier and emptier. What Agar is, is challenging us to do here is not simply look at a reversal as moving from a bad worldly status to a good worldly status, to really examine the heart of the matter, to ask, is it actually moving us in a way that's pleasing to God? Now, none of these things in themselves is necessarily bad. It's good if a wise servant moves to a position of greater power, doesn't stay oppressed, doesn't stay at the bottom of society. We should celebrate that when a wise person does. It's good if someone who's starving moves from a place of starving foolishness to wisdom and plenty, where they'll not only take whatever material blessings they have and, and survive off of them, but they'll use them to bless others. It's wonderful when, when someone who's unloved finds a loving spouse and they're able to celebrate in the joy of marriage together. That's a good thing. But we know from, from marriages that don't work out or are very unhappy that it's not good if it's a terribly unloving marriage and all they achieved was having a certificate that says they're married. That isn't the success. That isn't the thing. And likewise, someone who, who yearns for a child and, and an ability to pass down their worldly success, and that's their measure of success, that isn't ultimately the thing that's going to make them successful or not. Abraham and Sarah thought it would. 
clearly what Agar has in mind, whether he's thinking of that particular story or others, they're, they're setting their success on having an heir, but he says, you might go to, to an extreme in trying to achieve that, that actually won't cause good to come. And certainly that happens with Abraham and Sarah. You see, the thing is, in all these cases, when we see the bad examples, the heart of the matter isn't being dealt with. There's that external marker of success, even these good things that we yearn for, but they're not being done in a way that's good and pleasing and wise before God. How do we avoid that? How do we get an accurate read on how much is in the tank so that we know if it's getting low or not? We start by understanding where true success, the true reversal from bad to good is. We find that in the salvation that God offers us. Take a look at Titus chapter 3. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Talk about the greatest reversal ever. We go from, from the worst state. We're in a state where we deserve God's wrath. We are eternally separated from him. We are filled with brokenness and sin. And God takes us and offers himself for us that, that we can become his heirs, that we can become his children, in other words, that we can become sons and daughters of the living God. Talk about the ultimate form of reversal. And that's where we start measuring our success. When we're thinking about our fellowship with God as the way that we look at any opportunities for power that we have, any opportunities for success that we have, any opportunities we have for, for love and marriage, any of those things, anything that we can measure success on in this world that we're measuring them all on the basis of we're children of God and that our success ultimately rests in him, it then starts to let us examine those things by God's heart. And here's what we should do. We, we, we don't measure success by if we've gone from lesser power to greater power, lesser status to greater status. We measure it on how we're glorifying God and experiencing him in our lives. Sometimes it's going to have those worldly measures of success because God does offer blessings to us. Sometimes it won't. But it really depends on how we're evaluating it. And when we start to look at our spiritual gas meter and we're looking at if we're becoming fuller and fuller of God's spirit rather than looking on how we measure up in the worldly sense, we start to experience the true joy that God offers us. And here's something else he does then. When we see that that's the ultimate reversal, that's the thing that makes things good, that, that God has adopted us as sons and daughters and offered us regeneration and made us new and taken us out of the state of sin, then when we achieve those other things, we're doing them to glorify God. And when we're glorifying God in our lives and we're seeing if we have success, if we have abundance, we're giving it to others because we want to help others and we want to love our neighbor as God has called us to do. And, and we want to share the love of God with others. And we're excited about that most of all. We're not only those who experience the ultimate reversal, we're those who get to be agents of that reversal in other people's lives. Because just like us, everyone's heart is chasing after those pictures of success. But so often they come up empty. And we get to be those people who take that tank of gas to people stuck on the side of the road. 
and give them the hope of the gospel to fuel them back up so that they can embrace the ultimate reversal too. May we be agents of God's reversal, his ultimate reversal. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, so often we value the wrong things. We we chase after things and we're looking at our worldly gas tank and, and the, the gauge seems to say that we're we're filling up, but in fact our, our the what really matters, the real fuel for life, the the fuel that comes from you is, is getting emptier and emptier. Lord, instead of valuing the things the world does, would you help us to see everything in the context, in the light of that ultimate reversal that you've given us as you sent your Son, our Savior, to take on the sin of the world, including my sin. Things that should never have happened. A horrible reversal, an unjust reversal, it would seem, where he would receive everything he didn't deserve for all that he does. And yet you did that. You endured that. You, oh God, did that, that we might experience the reversal too. That we might go from those who deserve your wrath to those who are loved as sons and daughters of God. And if there's anyone listening tonight who's never experienced that, my prayer is that you would let them experience that tonight, that you would nudge them with your spirit. And they would experience what it is to go from a sinner to a beloved child of God. And indeed then, as all of us walk in fellowship with you, that we would see that as the foundational reversal in our life and whatever else we might seek, success or power, anything that the world measures, that we would see it gauged upon that reversal, that work that you're doing. And that through all of that then, and through all the blessings you do give us, whether it's it's power or money or love or whatever it might be, that, that all of it would be done for your glory and that as people see our lives and as we use what you do bless us with to bless others, that we might point them to you. And that most of all, the true success in our lives would be how you're using us to be agents of reversal, bringing that spiritual fuel to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So often today, people are asking the question, what is success? And if this has been an encouragement to you tonight, would you consider sharing this? Share it on Facebook. Share it on your Twitter account. Share it by email. Call up someone and invite them over to watch it with you. Maybe you know someone trying to say, what's my life about? What really matters? Does anyone care about me? Consider sharing this video because we together can be agents of reversal. And I'm so thankful when you join me and we join together and we take God's word and we share it with other people. I hope that you'll consider jumping in and doing that. Give us a like or and a share, of course, and leave a comment. Let that big computer in the sky that decides what to recommend to people know that this mattered to you and might matter to other people. We have lots more coming up at Little Hills. This week we have men's Bible study on Thursday, and if you're looking to get plugged into a Bible study, I hope that you'll consider taking part in that. We have a wonderful, wonderful study going on with a great group of guys. On Saturday, we once again have songs from our for our temple, looking at the Psalms together as we've been doing this year. And it's a wonderful way to encourage each other, keeping our focus on that ultimate reversal and that gospel and that grace that God gives us. And then, of course, in-person and online worship on Sunday evening at 530. I'd love to see you in person. And if you can't be in person for whatever reason, it's too far away, you're not feeling well, whatever it might be, feel free to join us online. We have a wonderful online community and we all both online and in person share in the body of Christ together. It's so great to see you there. And then, of course, next week we will be back with Steadfast. But let me note something. 
over the last two and a half or so years, we have met every Monday night at 7 p.m. We're going to change that next week, just for next week, because next Monday is Independence Day, and a lot of us are going to be celebrating that, shooting off fireworks, what, what have you. It's usually not a day that we're in on the evening, and so we're going to do Steadfast in the morning next Monday. It's going to be pre-recorded, posted online, that you can watch it at your leisure on Independence Day or another day this week, uh, this that coming week. I hope it'll be a blessing to you, and I do hope you'll join me. But next week, you can watch it at 7 p.m. if you'd like, but it will be up earlier. I just want to alert you to that, and then after that, we'll return to our normal time slot. But we'll be looking at wisdom over strength, and I think it's a perfect thing to do on Independence Day. I do hope you'll join me for that. Also, as I mentioned, the Psalms readings are such a great way to be digging into God's Word. Jason just gave us a fantastic devotional this past weekend through Psalms 76, 77, 78. Hope you'll check that out and then go to grow.faithtree.com during the week. Together we can encourage each other, share in the comments maybe a verse that really meant something to you, a question you had. We can encourage each other in God's wisdom together and help us to focus at the heart of what true success is together by focusing on our God together. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen. Leave a comment in the comments below. I love hearing from you. I know that everyone else that shares in the comments does as well. So let's share in God's wisdom and his encouragement and fellowship together. Hope you have a blessed week and I'll see you back here again next week. Remember, at a special time in the morning and then back here on every Monday thereafter.